Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gayo Mago land by me, Liam Miller. He, him, he's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. My guest today is a newly inducted president of the Uniting Church in Australia. So, so people might, might notice that my usual, you know, combative gotcha self will be absent in this uh, interview. Uh, Reverend Sharon Hollis. Reverend Sharon, welcome along. Thanks for having me, Liam. Um, I'm coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Wurundjeri language, and I acknowledge them today. So um, thank you for joining us today. So obviously you've only just recently been uh, inducted into the United Church as, as, as president. You've been part of the United Church much longer. I guess one of the questions I have is... Um, how does someone become president of the Uniting Church in Australia? Now, now, I'm less interested here in the actual formal procedure, but as in that's not something that most folks out there know exists, aspire to, uh, think is something that's a path, a, a thing. So so what, I guess, in, in your life drew you to this point that, that you now um, have, have responded to this call? Mm, well, I, I mean, I don't think it was ever something I aspired to either. <laughs> I was going to say you get elected, like that's the, that's the cute answer. Um, I guess, uh, so I've been ordained nearly 30 years. So um, I set out on ministry, ordained ministry fairly young, um, particularly um, when I was ordained. So it's been one of the great joys actually over the last 25 years to watch younger people enter ministry. Um, when I went to college, there were like three people um, in their 20s training um, and, and that was considered a boom of young people. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I do think part of it is is just um, I did, not, not longevity and just I sat around and waited for my turn, but mm. um, just that fact that I've, I've had 20 years um, in kind of ministry leadership roles, I think probably at one level prepares one for, for a role mm-hmm. like this. Um, I had two congregations and then I moved into um, a synod role. So I undertook, uh, I, I was for nearly a decade uh, doing continuing education for clergy in um, in the Victas Synod. And um, mm. it is a job I would go back to at the drop of a hat. I loved it. It was, a, I really, I love um, adult education. Mm. I, I really loved um, working with ministers and helping them uh, kind of grow and develop their capacity and capability for ministry. So I guess a, a role like that puts you in touch with a diverse number of people in your church. Um, and um, so then I was elected moderator, and I think that was partly, like I do think part of this is is you have to be sort of known. So um, like we should, it shouldn't be the case, but I do think pro, like cynically profile helps uh, in as much as people know you, they trust you, they, mm. they can see something in you, um, you know, it, these roles still do carry um, both um, symbolic importance but also um, particularly, um, I think, you know, moderator, like, you know, at the end of the day you get to stand ministers aside if they behave badly and mm. you meet with people who've been wronged by the church and mm. as well as in good moments and celebratory moments. So you do have to have, people have to have some confidence in you that you can mm. do the work. I think a role where you get to meet a lot of people does help a lot of people develop some confidence in you. Um, in my role, when I was in, in the continuing education role, I, I did a master's, well, nearly did. I didn't quite finish it. Um, life took over, but I, I've got five-eighths of a master's. 
of educational leadership. So I suppose for a while I've been thinking about the nature of leadership and educational leadership's interesting because it's mostly for, I did it at um, Australian Catholic University where there were a lot of teachers and particularly people wanting to be heads of RE, um, which is paid the same as a deputy principal in Catholic system. So it's quite an attractive role. <laughs> if you're a person of faith, it's a really attractive role. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, squirrel that away, I guess. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, I'm not a teacher, so that, that pathway's not for me. <laughs> I, I don't have a bachelor of education or anything. Um, so I think because education is, um, like, it's a business at one level, but it's also at another level, uh, you know, the, the for-purpose or not-for-profit sector. Mm. Thinking about leadership in that space is actually quite helpful as a church leader because you're engaging with material that's not written explicitly for you, mm. um, but which um, shares some of the same kinds of philosophy and concerns as the church. So, I mean, I'm not saying you, we can't learn things from literature written around leadership and business, but I think there's a lot more translation to do. Um, and I quite like that dynamic of having to do some translation because it, it pushes you to think, well, okay, you know, to what extent... I, I, Am, you know, am I being enculturated by something that's yes. foreign to the church, foreign to the way of God? Um, to what extent is there wisdom? Can I see the movement of the Holy Spirit in this? So I guess um, partly I'd also been thinking about leadership. So, mm. um, and as um, someone said to me, being a moderator looks good on a president's CV. <laughs> um, I, I presume I did an okay job as moderator yes. and um, <laughs> people came to me and I mean, I do, I love big picture thinking. I love the kind of the sweep of work that moderator and president gives, which I guess means I've probably also developed some gifts in that space. So um, I allowed my name to go forward and you make a video and the assembly votes and there you go. There you go. There you go. Oh, thank you for that. It's it's interesting. So as you say, you've been ordained like you know twenty years. You've been in a variety of roles, including as you say that that moderator role where, and and I guess continuing education too, where you get to see a broad swath of the church. Mm-hmm. Right, you're not just kind of you and the congregation and occasional trips to presbytery and stuff, stuff like that. And I think you know from from my experience, sometimes it's kind of like ministers who've been in it a while kind of tend to go two ways. There's the ones who go. Um, I want as little to do with the broader machinations of this church as possible, right? I love it. It's all good, but that's just absolutely not for me. I've got this that I'm working on. And others who kind of, you know, are drawn to it and move further in. But then I'm sure also that movement further in, you, as you say, you see both the, you stare who enjoys and concerns. You also see maybe the breadth uh, of the hurt, um, oh. the breadth of the problems, the the you know the the you know just how deep down like you know some of the cultural issues we're still trying to work through uh, and failings of the past that we've inherited go, um, which I'm sure stops a lot of people from going. I want to take another step, you know, mm. either to a moderator or a president. So I guess what one one question I, I you know I'm thinking about is like, is what was it for you that kind of kept you going? No, I'll, I'll stay at this level or you know this this kind of broader church level and I'll continue to to wade deeper into that rather than going. Oh, that's you guys. Someone else, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll. There's other good work to be done, and I'll go do that elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. Except that I, I somehow I find that attractive. Mm-hmm. 
so I suppose I'm a big picture person. Like, um, as people will discover as across Australia, they get to know this president. I'm not details, not always my my <laughs> thing. Um, so there is something for me interesting about actually seeing the the sort of bigness of the problem. Mm. Um, that, that I or, or the joy that I, I, I kind of like. I, I think I think as a in systems kind of way. So I like I, I, I kind of enjoy that sense of oh, actually, there's some patterns to some of this. Um, there's some, you know, like when you're in the middle of it, it can feel like um, your your situation is totally unique, and every situation does have its unique qualities. But um, I actually quite like that. Um, that sense of what's the pattern here? Uh, are there things we can see so that if we could address um, the pattern or the system, actually we could uh, help a lot of people who think they're, they're stuck in their own unique um, issue or at least provide some, some structure or some scaffolding for them to address the unique presentation of the kinds of uh, structural issues that we're dealing with. So, uh, I actually don't know why my mind is wired that way, but that's how I, I like yeah. that. When I was at uni, I did um, I studied human geography and I really love things like demographics and looking at the <laughs> geographic pattern of things and, you know, why is it, um, you know, all the psychologists are in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne where, you know, <laughs> their fee can be met with less stress than in the west and, <laughs> You know, just yeah. like looking at the fact that 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 the kinds of struggles that individuals experience actually can be mapped, it can be seen and 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 studied and analysed. I like, yeah, even at uni that that interest that interested me. So, um, yeah, I I can't explain why my brain started was why it kind of had that initial interest, but I suppose, um, you know, um. What you feed grows in that sense, and I've always kind of been interested in that. I've, I've fed that part of myself, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so thinking about that, thinking about if you've had a map up on the wall in front of you now and you're starting to think of some of these issues that you're seeing mapped out, like for, for, for the church, some of the ones that, that you think um, are, are at play in a lot of the individual problems that, that we're facing, um, I guess what are some of those like ones that you're maybe seeing or you're thinking are are most prominent in I guess the the landscape of 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 the UCA today? I mean, I think one of the significant issues is that the resources aren't necessarily where the ministry needs are. Hmm. So, um, I, I think we've I think we've got to really face that issue that we've got. I think amazing ministry opportunities. We've got amazingly talented and gifted ministers and congregations and people and um, emerging communities that don't fit any of our current contemporary categories. Um, but sometimes, um, and some of that can be done with no resourcing. Like I do think um, we can overemphasise the need for resourcing, mm. but I do think nonetheless... I, I think we haven't got. We have one of the issues we've really got to tackle is how do we, how do we put the the, the particularly the physical and financial resources uh, where we think the ministry um, needs most are. How do we? I, I, I mean, at one level, 
particularly ordained ministry or, or pastoral ministry, is a user-based system. Mm. Yeah. And I, 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 I think in no way is that a justifiable way uh, to, to manage how we resource ministry effectively because mm. I don't think just because uh, a certain group of people uh, can pay and that's increasingly not paying out of their own purse anymore. So, mm. you know, gone are the days where, I mean, when I started in ministry, your aim was to kind of meet your basic needs through the through the plate, yeah. like giving, direct giving from members. I think incre that's increasingly not how congregations are meeting their needs. They're meeting them by um, leveraging the assets they've got to, to create income. And mm. that means that entrenched, the, that those places with the most privilege are entrenching their privilege because we've still got a user pace system of ministry. Mm. And I think that is a really pressing question. So, you know, why is it congregations that have a lot of promise or faith communities that have a lot of promise uh, are struggling to, to, and I'm not saying they have to have ministry in the kind of traditional, you know, one congregation, one minister mm. scenario, but I think we're kidding ourselves to say all new expressions of ministry can be done for nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because established ministry is not done that way and, and I don't see why we... Like there is something about you know startups that um, kind of doing it on the seat of your pants can be helpful, mm -hmm. but not always. Mm. So, um, yeah. You know, it, yeah. So I think that is one of the issues we face. How do mm. we how do we be, develop a more um, a kind of needs based approach to funding the ministry of the church, broadly understood, mm. rather than a kind of who's got who's yeah. got capacity to pay. Mm. Um, you know, and I've been thinking about that ever since mobile phone towers were a thing back in the day when, you know, getting a mobile phone tower was a solution to you. Intling <laughs> 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 giving. <laughs> you know, and yes. it, it meant, you know, congregations were entering into these contracts with um, mobile phone companies back in the sort of early mid-90s and you could just see it meant they, they had a security that had mm. nothing to do with whether they needed that money or not. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, and I remember one community that decided not to go that way because the reaction from their neighbours was so strong. Back when we also thought mobile phone towers were going <laughs> to get brain tumours, um, but you know, like they actually listened to their neighbours and didn't go down that path. And you think, well, actually, is that a model of ministry that should be encouraged? Mm. Where you actually pay attention to the people that don't belong to you. Mm, mm. Um, but who are your neighbours? Um, you, you know, that struck me as actually a ministry disposition we'd want to encourage. Mm. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Mm. So, I, I mean, I think that's one of the kind of pressing practical issues. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I mean, you know, anybody that's read anything coming out of Assembly will know that one of the things that really concerns us and I, I am kind of committed to is is the fact that we we have a structure of governance that no longer like we're over 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 governed um and I don't mean that in a way that says let's I, I, like I don't want people to hear me say well let's just involve less people but I think we need to find ways that are lighter and sleeker and easier to navigate um mm. that that kind of look more like um 
more like what contemporary, what what our capacity is. So, you know, one of the great joys of the Uniting Church is, like, uh, I mean, at one level we are hierarchical. As uh, as people point out to me, you know, like when you become moderator, you get a stole, it's got a silver panel on it. When you become president, you get a scarf and it's got a gold panel on it. Like, <laughs> you know, especially the Olympics year, there's a certain hierarchy in that. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I, I sense the, the deep respect many people have for the role that I now occupy. But I think we are still, relatively speaking, uh, um, a, a church that likes to engage um, a breadth of its membership mm. in a range of decision-making processes, and I don't want that to end. Mm. I think that actually does is um, equips us well for for the kinds of decisions that have to be made. There's a certain kind of locating the decision as close to those affected as possible that comes from that. But but having said that, we are massively Mm. over-governed. You know, the people that set the governance structures and the councils of the church out just couldn't, I I don't think they could even have imagined that the church would be the size and shape Mm. and spread that it is. And I just think... We can hold on to principles of interconciliar governance of um, a kind of consensus approach to decision making while also making it easier to navigate and, and tying less people up. Mm. A governance is just crucial, and I think if we don't if our governance doesn't reflect who we want to be, that's a problem. Yeah. But it shouldn't become who we are either. So, like, there's a whole lot of ministry and mission to get on with that people are, are struggling to get on with because we're, we're governance-heavy, we're committee-heavy, mm. um, we're structure-heavy and, um, you know, um, yeah, as I say, part of the deep attraction of the Uniting Church for me is that governance, the way we go about decision-making yeah. um, and being, but not at the expense of trying to be who we are meant to be in the communities we live in and work mm. in and, and engage in mission in. So yeah. I think we have to resolve that too. I think that's really like, yeah, really important. I think, you know, you're saying how like, you know, those who are, you know, coming up with these systems and structures couldn't foresee the size and the shape, but also just the societal changes of, you know, people are now working a lot longer. You know, back maybe for a lot of people there in the 70s, in the mid 70s, it's like most people kind of finishing work at five, home before I six. Know. Um, didn't have work that carried over to the weekend, um, often lived closer to extended family and support network. So if you need someone to come and mind a kid where you went to an evening meeting, like easier. Mm. Also that you had more people retiring early, mid 50s. So you had this huge swap of people with buckets of time yeah. with still high kind of levels of, of, of you know, capacity energy to, to go and do stuff. You know, that that, you know, supported, you know, and, and just more people total, but all those kind of factors together meant you could have, yes, quite a large system in play because it was not too much an arduous thing to expect someone to be at a one or two meetings across a week or what have you. So um, very different now. Yeah. Mm. And, I mean, nobody was sitting in church listening to your sermon, keeping an eye on the, you know, emails coming in from work yes. wondering what disaster was coming their way. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah, no, totally right. Um, well, you know, and I, I was on. I went on placement in the early 90s and one person had like a size of a brick mobile phone and it was the <laughs> local funeral director slash real estate agent. Yeah. Who 
I did take a phone call one Sunday. It was extraordinary. My that my um, supervisor was announcing the death of a member and saying, I'm not quite sure when the funeral's going to be. The phone went off and about three minutes later he says, oh, I can tell you when the funeral's going to oh, wow. be. And then another five minutes later the phone went off again and some witch in the congregation said, oh, that's the family ringing to sell the house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, tell you what, that's a that's a it's a decent like um you know integrative business model there to pull <laughs> those two together. But like one person had a phone that would yeah. interrupt them from the, their focus on a Sunday morning. Everybody else was a captive audience. Like yeah, nobody's their cap. Like no, nobody anymore. No, yeah. So yeah. I think that's it. Like I mean, and the the what people have often remarked about the how rapid things have changed technologically mm-hmm. say from from no cell phones to you know cell phones that could just do calls and text to now um the world in your pocket um you know there to find out anything and, and communicate in all different ways like that has and to, to, to this technology right like know. you know ha, has um been so fast that like yeah you know they often talk about how like you know um, legislation trails technological development and yeah. and and you know and so too like church polity and church practice and the way we think about all these kind of things uh yeah it does so as well yeah and at one level it probably should because mm. if we kept changing church governance every time right you know if we changed for the call only cell phone we'd still be behind so there's a sort of <laughs> sense that you have to wait until there's a pressure on you mm. but i think that's the thing. The pressure's like it's now. It's now so obvious. We have to kind of get on with it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. We've been talking a little about like you know the, the the past of the church and the change and the times now. It's so so. Just this year, the Uniting Church, uh, whatever it's called, Historical Society Group did a conference on growing up uniting. Um, and I was thinking about how you know with with your election and with um, the election of of Reverend Carissa Sully into president elect. And even maybe some extent um, with with Dr. DJ Palmer before you, but but really with you and Carissa, we're getting into presidents now who've, who've truly only known the Uniting Church. Mm. I mean, Carissa was born after Union, yeah. Um, but but you know, the, who've only served as Uniting Church members who did you know who've only um, known this form of the church, not not the um, lowercase Uniting Churches beforehand. Um, how do you feel that? I guess, you know, both personally but also on a broader scale is going to shape, um, and anyway, that's obviously going to trickle down into all these other, you know, ministers like myself, other people in, in presbytery and moderate and, and synod roles. You know, we're kind of getting into that now where that's going to be much more the norm mm. of different positions. How do you think, how are you feeling like that's going to shift, change, add questions that maybe haven't been than, than, than previously? Yeah, I think it's a, like a really interesting thing because you know one of the one of the things that people who were around at the founding of the Uniting Church and people who knew them and yeah, I do I feel the measure of like I get the excitement, but I wasn't part of it. I, I mean, I was um, I mean, I was born before the Uniting Church, but I was um, I was nine when it came into mm-hmm. being, and we'd moved to a um, a new suburb in Melbourne. And so union was coming and so they didn't build, like it was technically a Methodist church, but it was basically a union yeah, church. Like right. It was built with the expectation it would be the uniting church. So, mm. so yeah, I literally have almost no sense of what that means. Uh, I mean, other than 
kind of some memories from my mother and grandmother. Mm. So, but like the, a lot, one of the things they talk about is that it, they, like they they were founding a new denomination at one level, but that kind of fervor for union was such that they really saw us as non-denom or not really a denomination. Somehow that. Um, you know, I think they hoped there'd be more unions and mm. there'd be, uh, uh, I don't know. But, like, I do think we've now come to realise we are a denomination, we're an institution, and, uh, like, I, I, at one level we need to keep that movement spirit, but at another level, particularly when you exercise leadership, you come to realise that, like, there's stuff you've got to take responsibility for and that requires structure and um a certain level of being an institution and I think trying to be a healthy mm. structure is really wise. So I was really intrigued watching the videos for the New South Wales ACT Synod where they one of the questions they asked was what was what's unique about the Uniting Church? And I think there's been a real hesitancy to ask that question up until now because mm. there was this sense that actually really we were all we were trying to be move ourselves into something bigger to to not be unique but to be open to, to mm. that we, we somehow thought being unique, stating our uniqueness meant union, a further union would be harder, that we were becoming more de, more like just another denomination. So I do think part of when this is all you've known is um, you have to accept that we, we actually, like whether the founders meant it or not, we have become a denomination. Like mm. there's just no getting away yeah. from that, you know. And for whatever reason, to do with the zeitgeist of the time, I think further institutional union is off the table for the foreseeable future, um, partly because of decisions we've made, partly because I think culturally that's just not where people are at anymore. Um, you know, we're happy to find, try and, you know, I think at a local level communism still has patches of being very active and people engage in it when it's sort of mutually beneficial primarily. But so I do think that's one thing that actually we just accept almost that this is a denomination that we're going to get on with it. We're going to be who we are, um, you know, not uncritically, but we, we just, we're in the landscape of the Christian church in Australia as, as the Uniting Church in Australia that what's becoming our tradition actually is no longer the constitutive traditions and how we, you know, how we were a bit of this and a bit of that and we tried to bring the best of all of them and make something new. Mm. Like, and I do think, you know, that thing that says it wasn't ecclesiastical carpentry's right, that they were they were really searching for something brand new yeah. and that's just no longer the case anymore. It's not brand new. It's 44 years old. It's it is a denomination. It's got an institutional footprint that's actually quite big in Australia. Like when you take into account, you know, all of the uniting, uniting care agencies, you know, um, uniting world frontier services, mm. plus our congregational um, footprint. It's you know, mm. it's got a fair presence. Not big in terms of numbers. And, you know, all the constituent problems about our size and whether we're declining or growing or whatnot. But I do think that coming, like, as a, like, uh, yeah, I literally feel yeah. uniting church. And yeah. so it's just a given in a way, I think. So I'm not wondering, um, you know, 
I think we I just we, it's about what does that mean growing into that accepting mm. that yep. kind of thinking about what what is what is the charism of the uniting church rather mm. than a, as a fixed thing rather than as a kind of we might be out of business in a couple of years if someone else wants to join with us thing mm. and I think that is a genuinely new thing and I think in that mm. sense you know like the base of union is is continues to be for me, really important and guiding in what that means. Mm. But I do think as opposed to the founding um, basically fathers, you know, um, that we, we we live with just the reality of it. We are the Uniting Church. This mm. is who we are. This is who we want to be. This is who we have been. You know, we have to accept like some of the institutional her- legacy that we're dealing with is from our predecessor churches we just have to accept that we carry that with us for good and for ill but I think what's happening is an emerging uniting church identity and I Mm. think we just accept that um you know and the things that we don't do well but that we're trying to do you know Mm. that we 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 have entered into covenant we have the preamble we are a multicultural church those are all beginning points not end points like I think they're pointing to who we want to be but I think when you've grown up uniting, that's maybe one of the things you just accept. This is, as a denomination, where where our commitments are mm. to kind of, you know, exploring the edges and, and um, asking about inclusion and, and, and um, what's the next step in that journey. So mm. I, I don't know. I just, yeah, mm. I don't have any nostalgia. <laughs> I don't really have a nostalgia for being... I probably would have been method. I think, like my mother and grandmother are Methodists, so um, there's a bit of Presbyterian in our family as well. But um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm interested in it, like yeah, you know, yeah. as part of the theological tradition. So, you know, I'm interested in what Methodists and Presbyterians around the world are saying theologically. But I don't mm. have a nostalgia for being a Methodist in Australia, and I think mm. probably um, where we are probably the first leaders of the church who, who are at that point of, yeah. you know, our nostalgia is for 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 20 years ago, not for, you know, yeah. like even the moment of union, I have absolutely no memory or recollection. Mm. Mm. So I think yeah. it was a fan, I mean, I just like the work that went into that is extraordinary. Yeah. And to be honoured always, and as I say, for me, the base of union continues to be a key, so like absolutely foundational to trying to shape my own leadership, my own thinking about the life of the Uniting Church. But I don't, I'm not even nostalgic for that mm. moment. Mm. And I think what you're saying there about like, you know, that actually claiming that identity and going, we can make decisions that kind of, um, that bolster it, right? That 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 mm-hmm. lean into it um, yeah. or, that, or that bring bring aspirational identity, bring polity into line with aspirational identity, right? Like that we can lean into that one in that sense of, and maybe that forecloses the possibility of church X, Y, or Z joining. Um, but also it means it's honest about if they, if a church did want to enter into union and, and that conversation started up again, we've actually established some things about who we mm. are, what we value. But I think it's also important for, I think, as you say, for so many of the folks who are just part of the uniting church now who are younger, who don't have that, memory like you know who I know in in kind of my generation younger it is just like no this is the church we want to be a part of like we want to be a part of this for various reasons because it's just so 
not a given to be a part of any church now. So if you've and if you've chosen to be a part of the Uniting Church, if you're a young person who's chosen to be part of the Uniting Church, you've done so for pretty specific reasons. Yeah. Um, and so it's 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 kind of honoring of that to say, yes, let's actually carve that out. Um, which I think also then maybe presses on to another thing that is maybe I think sometimes a bit of a generational gap of there's sometimes this idea of like there's actually there's a reality of this, right? The United Church is a broad church, right? You can huge swaths of, of very conservative to very progressive. And those obviously are very trite labels, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, this huge swath of theological and political and, and aesthetic um, approaches. Mm. Uh, and sometimes that's led to a kind of, the United Church sort of believes a bunch of things and sort of doesn't. Um, but, uh, you know, but it seems almost now there's a bit more of a, at least a desire from from some to go. Let's actually claim an identity and let's claim some very, um, you know, firm beliefs on things. And you know, I'm sure and, and past documents have done that too. Multicultural church and, and, and the preamble, but but like you know, decision on covenant. Sorry, decision on sovereignty, um, decision on marriage. Mm. Um, a, a host of those um, do seem to be a a kind of push into we want to have at least a little more of we can point to these things, even with acknowledging the reality of there's other United Churches that won't, but mm. we can point to these things as as saying something about this church and movement that we have chosen to be a part of and really try to have that as as, as, as something that has a distinct kind of more firm identity rather than mm. um, a constant openness. Yeah, and I think for me, like one of the interesting things about union is um, like there's a sort of de almost like it's the beginning of decolonizing almost in union. Like mm. you know the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists they came to us, you know they came and we are part of that. Like as white Christians, we we we're, it's part of our narrative. We have to own absolutely. But you know denominations are a gift of of the colony. Mm. You know, like they reflect the fractures of Europe mm. as if that's the kind of fixed narrative about Christian faith. And um, so, like, when you when you actually willingly enter into a conversation to try and bridge some of those gaps, those those schisms of 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 the of the old country, in a sense, in, in a new country. Um, like I don't think they thought that's what that this is where it would end up, <laughs> but it's actually like the very act of union is an invitation to say, what are the divisions we we have inherited um, really culturally mm. that no longer serve us, mm. that no longer serve the gospel, mm. and I think that's what they were doing at union. Mm. So that you know, the the, the founders recognised that the call of unity in the gospel was not served by these um, these denominations that were inherited from another place and another time, mm. and from different conflicts that no longer had resonance and relevance. You know, in nineteen fifties and sixties Australia, mm. and that's part of our DNA. That that story that says. What in our own life is not serving the gospel? Mm. And like in all those decisions, faultingly and fleetingly, we're asking, I think, those questions. What in our own life is no longer serving the gospel? 
So, you know, not to be in covenant with Indigenous people does not in any way serve the gospel. And that is the beginning of overcoming, you know, the sin of colonisation, the sin of dispossession, the sin of unrecognised sovereignty. And it's a tiny step and, like, we have so far to go still and, you know, in all the conversation about structure and governance, for me that's got to be a key question. What is the... What do Indigenous Christians think is the best place for them in the Uniting Church? Not what do I think, mm. not what do, you know, um, other white people in the church think. What do Indigenous people think? And, and, and even be open to that question from beyond the Uniting Church. Mm. You know, what do other Indigenous Christians think Congress should be um, for in and for the Uniting Church? And what do we, what, what do they want structurally to make that um, that possible? But we have to keep asking that question, you know, like how do we really honestly um, constantly critique mm. the impact of the sin of, of, of colonisation on our church and what in our life is preventing us from hearing the gospel on this so, and how do we um, how do we keep the kind of the impulse of union to keep asking mm. that question, keep doing the really critical self-examination. Because if we, if I want to be nostalgic for anything about union, and as I say, I really don't remember it, but I did have parishioners who kept telling me about the kind of really deep study they did around union, like all the Bible studies and all the mm. prayer and all the reflection and the reading of the basics, like regularly, you know, as they voted on it, that's the kind of impulse I'd like us to carry. If we're going to carry, you know, that's what I hope is still in our DNA, that really willingness to ask those deep questions, to do that deep thinking about what is what is getting in the way of, of the, you know, the life of the gospel in, in, in our own life as much as in the life of our, of our community. Because I think if we ask it for ourselves, that will flow into the work we do uh, with our neighbours. But if we won't ask it of ourselves, we just carry that with us into the neighbourhood and and kind of keep imposing it on people. Um, you know, and there's there's nothing more tragic than having to, uh, you know, like to, than seeing the really the deep impact of institutional abuse on people um, and the damage that does to individuals and to families and to, to, to communities. So that's why I think we we owe it to us. We don't. We owe it not just to ourselves, but to everybody we're in ministry, and to be regularly self-reflective about what it, what in our own life is not of the gospel. Like personally, my congregation, um, you know, for me now in the life of the assembly, what's what's getting in the way of the fullness of life that the gospel promises? Um, how do I, you know, really be honest about that? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I guess we're kind of coming toward a close. So I guess as you think of forward, you've got several years of, of the role of president ahead of you. Um, but, you know, we, we know from, from presidents, presidents, you know, are always concerned with legacy, always about establishing something <laughs> that they'll be known for and that we mark their years. And so I guess um, uh, even though posed flippantly, I guess, but do, do you have a thing of the, as you've stepped into this that you kind of, I guess, hope in some way your term your, your service in this role might be known for, uh, if not in the moment, perhaps uh, perhaps afterwards. <laughs> I'll have to get you one day, Liam, to tell me what the legacy of every president is. 
<laughs> so I can work out what yeah. mine should be. <laughs> funny, Rob, because like it's literally three. The second, so like, you know, day two of the role, there's my successor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, not hanging around. There's absolutely yeah. zero doubt that I'm <laughs> hanging around. Um, so, you know, like it's an interesting question about legacy because what can you do in three years to a, mm. you know, the behemoth that isn't in any institution? Um, mm. I, I guess what I hope, um, so the theme I, I, you know, you get to choose a theme, which is a odd thing in and, in and of itself. But the theme I chose for the assembly is dwelling in love. And it, it's always tricky when you use love in a theme because it can sound so kind of hallmarky, flippant. But I, I really do hope the legacy, if I have a legacy, or what I'm hoping my leadership brings is, is a, a capacity to be in honest conversation with each other about the very real challenges that we we are facing. So, you know, that's what that's for me what the dwelling in love kind of means that that we know we can be with each other in hard places because God dwells with us. God mm. is with us. Like, you know, the 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 enfleshment of God really changes the world and it means we can make and live through hard things because God journeys with us. Mm. Um, but I think if we think that and if we know that and if we believe that that is a life-changing moment, then it means we need to be regularly uh, being in hard spaces with each other in ways that are as loving as possible, but not just kind of in a way that says, you know, let's all be nice to each other and avoid the mm -hmm. hard issues, but actually says because we really, um, because I, you know, I, I value what the love of God has brought to my own life and mm. I want that value in the world. I want the reign of God to be more manifest in the world. We will have the hard conversations. Mm. We will stay with each other in love and hear things we don't want to hear um, and do the work we don't want to do at first blush because it's hard and painful and it forces us to face, you know, the, the shadow side of ourselves. Uh, but I think if we... I feel like we're at a point in the life of the United Church where if we don't have those conversations soon, there mm. won't be any point having them um, mm. because <laughs> yep. we'll have kind of just let a moment slip by and let what what could be really the possibilities of the United Church kind of could be buried under the weight of, mm. you know. I'm, I'm like I'm in my early fifties, and I watch my girls, and I I realise there are things about my life I neglected in my twenties and thirties, and it comes home to bite you in middle age. <laughs> and quite frankly, we're at that point in the church where mm. we've we've got to you know we've got to do the tough love stuff, and, you yeah. know, facing what's come back to bite us <laughs> a bit. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, but like that is hard. It does mean the personal trainer yells at you. Not that I have a lot of experience of that. I hasten to add, but I watch it and I avoid it. You see, I don't want to be yelled at. No, I'm with you there. Oh, that's great. And I don't want yelling in the church, but we do need to have those really tough conversations. And I, I guess I suppose perhaps why I was elected was I'm up for those conversations. Mm. Like I know at the other end of them there's life. Yeah. It won't feel like it in the moment, but there is life at the other end of them if we stay with each other mm. and, and have them. Mm. And particularly if we listen to voices that we've margin, marginalised in the past. Yeah. Like for yeah. me that's the key to that it's about whose voice are we going to listen to in these tough conversations. Mm. 
Mm. And it can't just be the same old voices. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Sharon. Uh, we always end the show in plugs. Anything you want to plug right now? Anything you want to promote, draw people's attention to? <laughs> um, well, my, the comms team of Assembly would say national update, weekly news about the Uniting Church. There you go. Get on the email list. Um, but also, um, I, particularly for people in the Uniting Church, just Act 2 stuff will be coming in the next kind of this second half of this year. And um, I really want to encourage people to engage in the conversation. Mm. So, um, yep. yeah. And I'm always happy to plug your show, Liam. I think um, I know you're approaching your 100th episode and you've been doing it for years. It's it's pretty remarkable that you've um, you've managed this with ministry and um, kids and stuff. And I, I, I think it is a huge gift, I mean, to the Uniting Church, but more broadly just uh, to the church and to the intellectual life of Australia. You know, like, congratulations. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Keep Sharon. at it. That's my plug. Keep at it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to. You're my boss um, now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just to be clear. <laughs> but, no, I appreciate that. That's, that's very generous of you and, and, and you've always been very encouraging uh, to me, so I, I appreciate that a lot. And I'll be praying for you through your term uh, and and hopefully we'll, we'll have you back on for another conversation sometime Um but yes, all the best going you forward. You can uh, tell me if I've made, got any legacy or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll bring on a panel. Uh, yeah, and uh, we can all reflect Sharon's <laughs> legacy. Um, all right, so look for that episode in about three and a half years, folks. Uh, so <laughs> um, that'll, that, that's my that's my um, motivation to keep going so I can deliver on that. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, uh, Sharon, for joining us. Thank you, folks, for listening. Uh, we'll see you all next week.